You're listening to Ludophilia. I'm Richard Moss. Video games affect people's lives. And maybe this sounds kind of like I'm stating the obvious. But they do. They inspire us and influence us. They teach and they challenge. And and we've already explored on, on this show some of the ways in which they can be an escape or they can become a beacon of hope. But for today's episode, I wanted to share a story about how video games connect us. How they connect us to each other. They also connect us to the world around us. Or at least they can. And they connect us to our past. Old passions rekindled can form new friendships and new relationships. And in so doing, if you excuse the pun, they form a link to both the past and the future. Alex Boz learned this firsthand. He runs a website called Oz Retro Gamer, and he's helped to organise and oversee the classic gaming lounge at the yearly games convention PAX Australia since it came to Melbourne a few years ago in 2013. But he wasn't always engaged with games. I mean, he loved them when he was a kid. He followed the trends, read the magazines, and he traded in all his old systems, boxes, manuals, and styrofoam included, in order to get the newest hardware each time it rolled around. But then, 15, 16 years ago, around the turn of the century, he just stopped. He lost interest. You know, I was working full time. I was in my um, mid twenties by then, and I thought, well, gaming—you know—I should get over the gaming part, and you know, real life sort of thing starts now. I've got to be an adult. I wasn't actually paying attention um, to what was happening in the gaming space, which I, I never thought would happen, but it did. And then it was um, it was Halo on the Xbox in 2002 that got me back into gaming. I specifically remember um, playing some retro games on there, and I thought, oh, okay, yeah, I remember these games. They were, yeah, I, and I and I still enjoy playing them. So I thought, oh, let's um, let's actually pull out the Commodore 64, which I had put a, put in the back of the cupboard, and he hadn't seen the light of day since probably uh, 88, 89, and it, you know, it fired up. I, um, I loaded the game on my disk drive, and um, I just recall thinking to myself, well, I don't remember games taking this long to load, but um, yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten how slow the disk drive was. It took about three or four minutes to load a game, and um, it, it immediately just, the nostalgia just hit me, and I thought, wow, I can still enjoy the games. Nostalgia is a powerful thing. It's a transformative thing. It transports us back, body and soul, to an earlier time. Memories flood back in waves of feeling. Smells, voices, rooms, objects, emotions. All these things that you once felt and heard and saw and smelled. They all hit you at once in a mad jumble. 
and a very, very powerful jumble. If you've idolized some portion of that past you's world, that past you's life, it's tempting to stay, or at least to visit again. And for Alex, it was a bit like rediscovering this part of him that he'd left behind during his journey to adulthood. A joyful, playful part of him that didn't necessarily belong in the past. Computers and video games had been pretty good to him. They'd helped him, inspired him. And they'd changed his world right at that time in childhood. When you're taking the, those first steps, where you you first develop the passions and hobbies that stick with you through your life. That period when little things spark big things because your tiny developing brain is just intoxicated by the power of some little fragment of an idea that you get exposed to. Like a video screen that you can interact with and that you can affect. We actually had one computer in primary school. It was a um, it was an Apple IIe, I think it was. And um, I remember um, the computer teacher, Mr. Moran, I still remember his name. Um, uh, he put on this game called Transylvania, and I was just like, "Wow, I can actually interact with this thing and um, type in commands and move around." And I just fell in love with it right then and there. At the time. The Atari 2600 was huge. I remember going past Billy Guyatt's uh, Brash's stores, which no longer exists, but seeing Asteroids uh, being played on a big TV. And, you know, I'd always go, ask my dad, you know, can I get one? And was, and I remember they were, they were like 300 bucks back then, and um, that was just way too much for my parents to afford. The first video gaming system I actually got was a Hanamex 666T, which is basically a Pong variant. Um, you plug it into uh, RF and uh, yeah, it was basically, uh, you know, one-on-one Pong and then also two-on-two, two versus two. So it was uh, like a soccer game, but it was really Pong um, going back and forth, scoring through goals. Um, but yeah, I absolutely love that. And um Imagination's a, a wonderful thing back then. My neighbour at the time, um, uh, now, now we're talking about probably 84, 85, he, um, he called me over, he said, oh, I've got this uh, new computer, Commodore 64, and um, I thought, oh, okay, I, uh, I don't recall knowing anything about it. I, I might have seen some ads on TV, but it, they didn't actually click. I was just, just all about Atari. And uh, yeah, going going over his place, and um, yeah, he had uh, decathlon on, and he started wiggling the joystick, showed me you know how to actually play it, and I was like, wow, look at the graphics on this, you know, way better than the Atari. And I I think I yeah I was onto my parents for uh, roughly probably about two years um, to get me a Commodore 64. Then one day I came home from school and I saw my uh, my my parents were in the kitchen and my sister was there as well and. Um, you know, I'm thinking, oh, they're looking at me funny. So I go to my bedroom, I open the door, and there's a family pack sitting on my bed. And I just remember being absolutely so 
uh, rapt about that. Um, yeah, I just I, I think I might have cried as well um, in happiness. But yeah, because I didn't think I'll ever get one. And the actual family pack came with a um, with a tape recorder. Uh, oh, sorry, tape player, data set. And um, the games I had were How's That Cricket and. Um, it was Arnie Armchair's America's Cup, and that thing took 47 minutes. And I remember that because I had to reload that damn thing so many times. And if you don't get the heads aligned properly, um, yeah, you can forget it. So you just you go away for another, you know, 45, 50 minutes, go outside, play whatever, and then come back and pray, you know, pray that it actually worked. And um, and when it did, yeah, we just, even though the game was quite crappy, um, yeah, I just uh, loved loved playing that. And um, it came with international soccer, which was probably the first game I played with my dad. Um, yeah, he was he wasn't good at all at it, but uh, just as long as I had a human actually playing against, that was that was awesome. And um, and the fourth game was Le Mans, which was a paddle game. So uh, yeah, basically a top-down racer. When Alex dug out that Commodore 64, he got to relive this experience, just for a moment. He was transported back to his childhood, and to the love he had for these technologies that he could interact with and play with. That one whiff of his past passion planted a seed. And he didn't think about it much at the time, but a few years later, around 2008 or 2009, he got this sudden urge to play Super Mario Bros on a Nintendo Entertainment System. Now he had never owned that game or console. He played it at a relative's house when he was a kid, but his family could never afford to buy one. But now, thanks to eBay and the fact that he has a job and that at least at that time <laughs> Old video games were much cheaper to buy than when they were new. Now he could buy one for himself. When I got it, yeah, it was, wow, it was just a massive um, trip down memory lane. I just loved it. And I thought, oh, what other systems did I really enjoy back then or I couldn't afford? He soon bought a Sega Dreamcast to replace the one he'd sold. And a Mega Drive, which he'd spent a small fortune on in the early 90s. And likewise had traded in for newer consoles. And he thought nothing more of it until he met his future wife, who had another Sega game console, the Master System. He bought her a new controller because hers was broken, and they bonded over a game called Alex Kid, which, if you've never played it, is kind of a, a platformer, a platform traversing game, a, a bit like Mario, but with some of that Sega edge. We eventually um, moved in together and uh, I actually got a new job and I, I was actually quite down about this new job. I didn't really enjoy it um, and I was, I was just not, not, not feeling the best, I guess. That's when my wife said, well, you always enjoyed uh, these old games and stuff. Why don't you look on social media, see who else is into it? And at that point in time, and this is now late 2011, I actually thought to myself, who else would actually like this stuff? There'll be no one. But to my pleasant surprise, I, um, I, uh, yeah, I got on Twitter, and I was absolutely amazed to find people on there. So, yeah, so it just took off from there. Really, it's um, uh, the nostalgia bug just bit really, really hard. 
So I would say I got into it pretty heavily uh, late 2011, early 2012. And social media was a, was a, was a big outlet to talk to other like-minded people and, and, and meeting, and meeting um, new, new friends, which, uh, yeah, that was four, four years ago, but it feels like um, known these people for a lifetime. So uh, I, I owe a lot to, um, to video games. <laughs> First, Alex only found retro gamers in the US and the UK, but gradually he discovered that Australia has a small, little retro gaming scene of its own. By early 2013, he'd had some limited interactions with people all around the country. I got invited to um, to an actual com- um, uh, a Commodore Club Day, and so I thought, oh, you know, I'll, I'll go. But I was a bit apprehensive. I thought, oh, I really don't know these people apart from just talking to them on Twitter. And, um, and my wife's like, well, you've got to get out of your comfort zone. And, you know, these people might end up being great, great people. And she was right, they were. And, um, yeah, it was just, um, it took off from there. He describes it as being like an explosion of people. He now has friends in nearly every city around Australia. And when he chats to people his own age, who aren't part of the gaming community, he finds that an interesting thing happens. I've got uh, old old school friends, and they say, "Oh, are you you know, are you into your gaming?" And it's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And then and then when I start talking to them about, and and I and I recall that they actually had a Commodore or an Amiga, and when I start talking to them about it, I see their face just light up, and it's like, "Yeah, that's exactly what what I was expecting," because. There's, I think there's a lot of people, especially in Australia, that are that, that are closet, um, you know, old school gamers. So, uh, ju- just the way I thought that, there's no one else out there that would like this stuff. And um, there's a lot of people, obviously, that aren't on social media and aren't aware that uh, there is a thriving scene. And, and then the people that we, you know, we want to reach out to because I was I was that person. And the best thing was was actually discovering this humongous uh, community um, that's into this same stuff that I am into and talk about it. I actually prefer to talk about it more than to actually play. So when we get together, we might have a you know a game, a friendly game for half an hour, and then we spend the next four or five hours uh, talking. It's great, and yeah, the more people that, that that we can reach out to and find and and get them on social media or get them to club meets or events to rediscover um, those old games that brought them a lot of um, happiness, I guess. They bond over memories of games they played as kids but also over new experiences and new discoveries, all centred around the games of yesteryear. And they also share an embarrassment over how they actually got the games they played back in the 1980s. Look, we did do the wrong thing. We did swap tapes um, in the schoolyard. And so when I talk to people around my age now, yeah, we all, you know, wince about that. And um, so we try, well, we buy games now to make up for that. So, um, <laughs> you know, we have a laugh about it. But at the time, any any money that you could save was either spent on the next big thing or the game that you definitely couldn't get from the school ground. And 
and uh, I hate to use the word pirate, but uh, yeah, there was uh, piracy in the schoolyard was rampant uh, back then. Ceremony. I'm just coming to terms with the soil and the sea. And a prayer that's as long as it is lean that it might hook a fish on the other side of the hours. On the other side of the hours. I'm, I'm very curious whether you think you have a, like a, a, a best game that you pirated. Uh. Oh jeez! Um, you know what I did actually get into? There, there was, there was, uh, it was Green Beret by Konami, um, which was my first, and that's why I recall that one. But when uh, my mum um, got, uh, well, my, my my parents got me the um, the disc drive, I just thought, oh wow, now now this takes it to a new level of 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 gaming because I don't have to uh, wait, you know, half an hour, forty minutes to load a game. I can load a game within a couple of minutes. And, and I knew a lot of people, um, friends and family that actually had disk drives and we had the latest and greatest, uh, you know, hacks to actually uh, copy copy games. So we would overwrite the uh, protection and that was actually the fun part. It was actually uh, cracking the games, which I know is a big no-no, but um, I actually enjoyed that. And that's how I sort of got into sort of looking at assembly language and not that I knew what I was looking at, but it was just, uh, it was just this weird fascination with looking at code and, how did you find out about piracy back then? Like, did, was it from a friend or? No, no, it was no, no, it was friends, uh, friends of friends. Um, yeah, it was um, someone in um, in another class. You know, they said, "Oh, they've got a Commodore 64 and they've got all these games." Every weekend, Alex would head over to this guy's house with a bunch of blank tapes that they could copy all the new games onto. He never actually told me where he got those games from, so I'll never ever know that. But there was a local guy here in Caulfield, uh, Melbourne. His um, his handle was Warlord, and he was. Um, I remember going to his place, and this guy had a bank of disk drives and modems. And uh, at that time, I didn't know what those things were. I was like, "Wow, what what are these things with the phones on them?" So he was actually on boards um, uh, over in the UK, Germany, basically just downloading games. There was no way I was able to afford that equipment, so that wasn't going to go anywhere. But I would say I was like a um, middleman, um, which yeah, doesn't doesn't actually sound good at all, does it? <laughs> Piracy was rife, and yeah, I'd be quite surprised if if I did meet anyone around my age or that grew up around that time that wouldn't have actually done that as well. Besides magazines, piracy was how people found out about games before the internet. And we've all heard these anti-piracy messages, like you wouldn't steal a car, and those other weird false equivalencies. But some developers actually benefit from people pirating their games. I know from my own research and interviews into video game history that it's definitely a sore spot for, for others. You know, some game developers are angry and and still very bitter about the piracy that happened with their stuff. But Alex has learned from his interactions online that many of his idols, the people who made these games that he adored as a kid, were cool with piracy. They knew that a heavily pirated game was also a viral sensation. Piracy, in a sense, was free marketing. 
and by either choice or necessity, some of the people hearing about it would go out and buy a legitimate copy. Nowadays, Alex tries to make up for it. He, he tries to, to ease this guilt by buying legitimate copies of, of all the games that he plays. Few of them are, are actually available to buy new. So he picks them up secondhand on eBay or through private connections. And he makes a point of only keeping the games and the game consoles that he plays. Your house must be pretty jam-packed with stuff by now. Um, it is and it isn't. Uh, we moved in um, at the end of 2012 to our, our current property. And look, the previous one, definitely. It was definitely jam-packed. It was, you know, it was like those shows that you watch on TV, hoarding. And um, I thought, man, I, I, I have to really declutter. So my rule is that I don't, I don't buy stuff for the sake of buying it so I can have it and it sits there gathering dust. So I'm not a completionist. I don't buy full sets of libraries for Super Nintendo or whatever. I just buy the games that I really, really like and I really, really enjoy playing back, back in the day. I see people with an extensive library of, you know, 700 games for their Super Nintendo, which is almost a complete um, library. It's like, well, well I, yeah, I can, I can, I can never do that because um, there is no way I would have liked all those games anyway. I do have uh, a converted garage into a um, an arcade slash console slash pinball setup, and that was my my wife's idea. So when we bought the place, I remember looking at the garage, and it already had plaster and and everything on there so it was already set up and I thought oh, I really don't want to park the car in there but uh, yeah my wife said well you should set it up as a um, as a games room and I, I think I just laughed and you know, as it turned out uh, yeah her, her idea came to fruition and um, we host uh, a lot of friends and family and from young to old they love coming over and, um, and having a go either on pinball or on an old console old computer um, the Neo Geo arcade machine and inside inside the house I do have an office an arcade machine. Uh, I'm looking at my Commodore 64, the Amiga, the Atari ST. Uh, the new one is all connected up, and um, just my handhelds behind me as well. But yeah, everything is in reach for me to actually pick up and play. He finds the hardware, these physical systems, give a, a stronger sense of nostalgia than the games, especially when the games are just sitting there in their cases looking at a, a spine or some box art. But he's also reached a point where he doesn't really buy much stuff anymore. I think I've exhausted all the, all the pieces of, um, of hardware that I've ever wanted to own, and then some. So, um, yeah, that's just about the games that I really, really want on each of those pieces of hardware. And even with the hardware, he's taking a tough stance. If he hasn't played it in around six months, unless it's particularly near and dear to his heart, it's gone. He'll sell it, make some room for something else. Even if it's something really cool looking like the Sega Nomad, which is a portable version of the Mega Drive console. Um, so it looks good, but yeah, do I play it? No. So it's, uh, it's better off going to someone that will play it. And that's, and that's the other good thing about the community. Um, 
a perfect example was last weekend, I got an email from someone that found found the site, um, contacted me and um, said that, look, um, you know, they've got uh, Amiga games and PC games and, you know, rather than throw them out or take them to the op shop or they would rather give them to someone that will appreciate them. And, Exchanged uh, phone numbers and they only lived uh, 10 k's away, so it wasn't too far. And uh, yeah, it was just handed me four boxes of of, of fantastic uh, Amiga games that uh, obviously they'd been kept for the way I would have because they they, they were in absolutely beautiful condition, um, stuff in their plastic inserts, and yeah, it was it was great. It uh, just warms the heart. The fact that there's people out there and you know the community just wants to make sure that things don't end up going in landfill and if you don't have use for it or something doesn't give you pleasure anymore uh, then definitely please pass it on to someone that that will appreciate it um, so I would, I would i would hate to see um, any of my stuff being thrown out so when i'm long gone i'm, I'm hoping that um, i should actually set up in my will that it goes to a museum or something because it would be an absolute tragedy for old stuff to be thrown out and uh, the next generation not actually knowing it apart from looking at it on the internet but actually seeing it in real life and touching it was there a point where you um, where you suddenly um, realized this importance of the stuff and you know, became passionate about preservation uh, I think it was that initial um, engagement on social media with uh, people in the US when I was talking about uh, you know Commodore 64, and I was talking about the Pong, uh, you know Pong and Atari 2600, and um, well, they actually knew about the Atari 2600, and the fact that uh, people didn't know um, about some of these systems, I thought, well, you know, we've got to we've got, we've got to preserve this stuff, and and people were were genuinely interested to actually know more and um, and wanting to see these things, so. Uh, I think that struck me straight away that I thought, well, yeah, this sort of stuff needs to be um, documented and hopefully curate the actual hardware. And look, emulation plays a big part because obviously discs, tapes aren't going to last a lifetime. If you're not familiar with the concept of emulation, it's basically where you have some software, an, an app, that runs on your computer and pretends to be a, a different system. You can use emulators to run digitized versions of odd discs, tapes, cartridges, and whatever else uh, odd software uh, was stored on. The best examples I can give uh, would be like playing a Sega Mega Drive game on your computer or hopping into your web browser and loading up the Internet Archive's MS-DOS software library and online games arcade. And these let you play old games that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to play on your computer. And they just kind of work inside your browser. Yeah, look, uh, media won't last a lifetime, so yeah, um, if you can at least preserve that sort of stuff, the games, digitally uh, then that's a great thing but the hardware um, even if it doesn't work at least if you can keep it so people can actually see it and, and touch it and, and and even smell it because I'll tell you now the Commodore 64 does have a peculiar smell about it and when I did open that up um, back in the early 2000s when when it'd been in the back of the cupboard for you know the 15 16 years uh, that that immediate 
plastic smell. It was like this burning plastic smell just hit me and I went, whoa. And it just immediately brought back, you know, me being a kid in the 80s. So, And that was before I even turned it on. So that's how much these things hold value. And I know uh, we've got, you know, the family with kids and they don't understand it, but they, um, but they actually do like to, to look at things they haven't actually seen before. Obviously, there's no nostalgic tie to the hardware, but you put on a game and all of a sudden they actually want to play. I guess games will always be games no matter what hardware they're actually being played on or what is it, old, new, modern, whatever. Um, if it's a game that uh, someone can pick up and play, then they don't care if it's on a Commodore 64 or on the PS4. A game's a game. And underneath the primitive graphics of the old stuff, you can often find some nugget of great design, or maybe an interesting idea, or it could just be terrible. But even terrible games are interesting historically. Even terrible games have something that you can learn from, or enjoy. And just by having those terrible games, we, we can see that not everything that was produced was brilliant and polished. And it's this preservation aspect of it that really drives Alex to be so vocal about his passion. He started the website Oz Retro Gamer in 2012 and has been posting regular blog entries since then. He covers things like games history, retro gaming events and projects, and whatever retro games he's passionate about. The idea for the website really came from outside of him. I had so much historical stuff in my head that I thought, I want to get this stuff out onto a blog because one thing that I did uh, note when I was talking to people, especially in the US um, and in the UK, uh, but more so in the US, they weren't aware of anything before the Nintendo Entertainment System. And I thought to myself, no, these people have to know that there was, I mean, the Commodore 64 made it to the US, but it was nowhere near as huge as the Nintendo, right? So, and 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 they were really open to um, to actually learning more. And uh, it was it was the people on social media that said, "Look, you should start a blog and 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 get this stuff down." Yeah. In the blog, and in person at events like PAX, where, as I mentioned earlier, he helps to run the classic gaming lounge, which is full of retro game consoles and arcade machines, and things like that. He tries to be an ambassador for, for old games. Because this stuff matters, and not just because of the design and technological innovations and the historical uh, value as an artifact. What sort of responses do you get from the the PAX attendees? I remember the first year um, seeing um, parents and I would see them walking towards the classic gaming area before they knew there was old systems there and you could see the look on their faces like oh yeah I'm only here because you know I've got to, I've got to supervise my 12 year old or 13 year old and then they come past and they see you know something from their childhood like, a, like the Commodore or a Sega and you see their face change and all of a sudden they're eager to share that experience with their um, with their child we immediately knew that yep this is why we're doing this stuff for this sort of reaction Games are for everyone, 
they can cross cultures and cross generations and bring us all together to play. Every year I'm always, I'm, I'm completely blown away by by the range of age, um, or you know, people that come into the area, you know, young, old, men, women, serving the war. Ludophilia is produced by me, Richard Moss, with music this week by Visager, Aguo Holo, H. Kisfer, Mikhail Norgard, Roll Music, Chris Sabrisky, Lee Rosevere, Kai Engel, Boxcat Games, and Revolution Void. You can support Ludophilia by donating via PayPal or Patreon, by leaving a review on iTunes, or simply by telling other people to check out the show which I hope you will do, because I need help to keep growing this audience. The show reaches way fewer people than it could, and probably should, and the more people we get listening to every episode, the greater the chances are that I can get these things out more regularly. It's a lot of work, so sharing the show or donating a few bucks tells me you care, and you want to hear more. And that drives me to keep making it better. That being said, I'm going to take a short break from production for a couple of months to focus on finishing my book, The Secret History of Mac Gaming. So there won't be another episode until October. I'll try to make it something special so that it's worth the wait for you. I'll let you go out on Visage's song, Epilogue. See ya. No. Ludophilia is produced by me, Richard. Max, no! No, 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 no. Out, out, out. Out, out. Back away. Max! Get away!
Max! No!